Good morning, and welcome to this part of our service. We're glad for the presence of each of you here. Certainly good to look at our Sunday school lesson and ponder the things that Jesus has done for us and what we can do for him because of that. Also appreciated the uh, song we sang here right before this uh, uh, sermon. Um, Prepare my life to fill its place in service, Lord, for you. Very fitting, very fitting uh, song for what I would like to speak about this morning. We, uh, we are approaching another milestone in our church in a few Sundays, um, in our church's history. We have an ordination that is planned, as has been duly announced, and is no surprise to anyone. And uh, Brother Warren is asked to be <clears throat> for a replacement for him, and, and that will happen here in a few weeks. And so we will, uh, another brother will be chosen to take Warren's place. And um, this morning I would like to think about what we sometimes call a, a, the qualifications for a leader. I'd like to consider that a, for a while this morning. But as I uh, pondered the uh, kind of the history of our church here, um, I moved here in 95, and uh, for a lot of years, it was Arnie and Dennis and Warren. That's who the leaders were here in this church. And you throw Pete Peters in for good measure for a few, for a few years, and, and he was coming and gone. And, but that's, that was just kind of the way it was. You just, and there just was no need for anybody else because those three men did it so well that uh, there just wasn't much need. And um, I kind of reflected over uh, the total of the leadership here in this church over the duration of its almost 50 years. We've, uh, we've had five men that have served as, as bishops here. We've had five men that have served as ministers here. And we've had one deacon. So, Warren, you've hung right in there, i got to admit. So, uh, now, in all fairness, three of the five ministers uh, went on to be one of those five bishops. We had two non-resident bishops for... I thought this was interesting, too. From 74 to 77, Rufus Beachy served as a non-resident uh, bishop here. And then from 93, or no, I'm sorry, yeah, 93 to 97, I guess that's four years, Lester Troyer served as a non-resident bishop here in our church. But about 10 years ago, uh, things began to change very rapidly here in our church. And um, uh, in 2012... Brother Dennis was ordained bishop. In 2013, I was ordained as minister. And then in 2014, Brother Arnie passed away. Two years later, in 2016, Dellen was ordained as minister. And then in 2020, I replaced Dennis as bishop here. And, uh, and then in 2021, um, Dennis moved to Michigan. And now we find ourselves here in 2022. Uh, replacing Warren as as deacon. Although I don't think Warren plans to move in 2023. I don't think he hasn't clued me in on that. If if that's the case, so uh, you're welcome to stick around, Warren. But you know, in a mere decade, we've had a complete change of our ministerial team, and uh, maybe that's not the most ideal, but that's just the the dynamics of where our church was and is. And uh, I think we have adjusted, or we are currently adjusting to these changes by God's grace. I don't, I don't sense any any large hiccups in that um, particular change. But you know, change is a is a natural result of the passage of time. Now, isn't that a profound statement? Um, it, it just it's just the way it is. Um, it is a reminder to us, I think that there's not a one of us that is indispensable. Not one. Uh, we just are not. If we ever thought we were, the accumulation of birthdays will teach us otherwise. And sooner or later, uh, we will find that, you know what? This thing's going to happen without us. And it does. 
In two years, <clears throat> our church will uh, be looking at its 50th anniversary. It's extremely hard to believe. seems like we just got past our 25th. And what's even harder to believe is that I've been here 27 of these, uh, of these, what is now 48 years. And, uh, as I thought through it, I think there's only two originals here. I think uh, Sister Leona and Sister Dawn would be the only two people here in this church that can say they were here for all 48 years. And the rest of us joined in at some point. And some of us chose to disjoin at some point. And um, so quite quite a change uh, that we've had. But, you know, there's, there's much that has stayed the same, I think. Um, I know this much. God is still God. It's still the same God in 74 as it is today. The way to salvation has not changed. That's, that still has stayed the same. And a church... And the way it should function as, out, as, as it is outlined in the New Testament has not changed. Now, there is a lot of people that have tampered with that in, uh, through, through the ages of time. And you can find plenty of churches that are no longer committed to the timeless teachings of the New Testament. They're just not. And uh, we don't plan to really talk much about that this morning. But I just say this for a challenge. <clears throat> to maintain a church that's committed to New Testament principles uh, as Jesus and the apostles laid them out is not going to happen by accident. It, it just won't. That's going to take commitment on the part of each and every one of us. And no matter how good the leader is, or leaders in, in the case in our church, if there's not a commitment on the part of each one of you, this church is headed for rough waters. It just is. But on the other hand, if there's commitment in each one of us that we will stay the course, we, we are committed to this thing. We're committed to, to uh, keeping current with Jesus and our relationship with him. And we're committed to each other. We have a, we have a pretty happy future um, for us. And, and we should take this seriously. We should look, each one of us should look back, you know, however long, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And we should think about, have we changed for the better or for the worse? Because I tell you, each one of us is changing. Um, Paul says to the uh, Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, he said, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Is that our testimony this morning, I guess, is my, is my, uh, is my challenge. Can people say of me as they observe my life, and I hope they can, that I'm being changed from glory to glory. I'm being changed closer to the image of Christ. Peter's challenge is quite similar. He says, I challenge you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. Again, I can't emphasize it enough. It takes no effort to drift. It just doesn't. And we have plenty of testament in our world around us of churches and people who had an obvious love for the worldly ways that they saw and they steadily assimilated into it. And this will surely happen if we are not vigilant. And so, uh, I lay that groundwork to say that, yes, we're changing. Um, we are. We're changing either for the better or for the worse. My observation is that in our church, I think there's many of us, if not all of us, I hope it's all of us, that are changing, and we're changing from glory to glory. We're changing from, uh, we're growing in that grace that God calls us to. And I want to encourage you in that. Don't give that up. Again, can I repeat myself one more time? There is no leader on the face of the earth that can keep a church on the straight and narrow by himself without the help of his brothers and sisters. There is absolutely no way. However, that does not 
that does not discount the need for leadership as laid out in the New Testament and for the commitment that is needed on the part of that leadership to do uh, what God has called them to do as well. And that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to look at at what the Bible says we should be thinking about when we think about uh, choosing a leader. And um, there's passages in the Bible that speak to that very directly. And we want to stick closely to that this morning and, uh, and consider what, uh, what these words are for us. This is a difficult lesson or uh, uh, text or topic for me to speak on, and I'll tell you why it is. Number one, I'm keenly aware of my own humanity and weaknesses and faults. And I feel terribly unworthy to even expound on this topic. And I'm sure you know those too. The second thing that I, that gives me some pause is because all of us know the same thing, don't we? We know that inside the confines of the walls of these four church, or these four walls of this church, there is no perfect person. There just isn't. All of us are still capable of making mistakes. We are capable of committing sin. We are capable of causing disappointment. We are capable of misjudgments. We are, none of us are completely free of bias. We're just not. We are selecting from a group of humanity that although we are redeemed, we are in various stages of sanctification. And you know what that means? That means none of us have completely attained, have we? We haven't. However, we are also selecting from a group of people that I believe are serious about their Christian walk. And they're serious about operating in the calling or callings that God has gifted them with and to serve in the capacity that God wishes them to serve. I truly believe that. Turn with me to Acts 6 to start us off this morning. Speaking of a, of a deacon, what is a deacon? Well, I didn't research this, but I did read uh, uh, Brother Howard's, Howard Bean's book on um, a good minister, it's called. He had a chapter there on, uh, on a deacon, and I, 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 um, I think Howard did his due diligence. So I'll tell you what Howard says that a deacon, what the word deacon means in the rawest form of the Greek language. It means to stir up dust. So I don't know, Warren, for 40 years you've been stirring up dust. And Howard, Howard said this, he said he thinks that probably, um, probably has some connotation of the fact that deacons are busy people. And they, they, he, he in his mind and, and Howard's imagination, he, he could imagine a, a man running up and down the, the streets of Palestine there, kicking up dust. He was in so busy in such a big hurry doing all his, all his chores. So I don't know exactly, but I thought that was interesting. We have, um, we have, um, in more modern times, I guess, uh, we understand a deacon to be someone that serves in the very physical parts of the church. And um, I think we understand that. Uh, the person that's involved with, um, with very, very real but very more focused perhaps on the physical operations of the church. And also in our settings, um, also in the, uh, the, the um, preaching of the word as well. Let's read the first seven verses of, of Acts 6. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring from the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they stood, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, 
and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great number and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So here we have the um, very familiar account of the busy apostles that were so busy preaching and praying and doing the spiritual, quote, quote, work of the church, that there were other spiritual activities that were being neglected, namely these poor widows that were not being looked after as they should be. And so they came to a solution. They decided that they were going to pick out seven men, and it said that the, uh, they should be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, and they were going to appoint them over this business. And I think it's interesting that the word business is used there. Uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat a, uh, a nice connotation of, of the work of what eventually became known as the deacons. And interestingly enough, the word deacon is not necessarily used in this passage. But if you would read further into the book of Acts, you would see that that title quickly uh, was attached to these men. If you read in uh, Philippians 1, 1, um, Paul says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And so, again, very quickly, the, um, the kind of the order of leadership was established and you had the bishops and deacons as they were uh, quickly recognized in the New Testament church as the, as the leaders of these different churches in the different towns. And when one looks at uh, our own Mennonite heritage, uh, very quickly we have the reference made to a three-office ministry, which became a model that we still operate under today. And... Um, I think it has served the church very well and uh, will continue to in the future. So I would just like to pull two things out of this particular passage. The first qualification was that these men had to be full of the Holy Ghost. What, what does that mean? What does it mean to be full of the Holy Ghost? Well, I think, I mean, I guess, I guess the question that comes to me is, well, shouldn't have that described every Christian? I mean, what... How can you, were these folks fooler, or, or what does it mean? I concluded, or this is my take from this, and uh, if, you, if, you, if you think I'm wrong, I'd be glad to hear from you on this, but I think what it means is that they were interested in having men chosen for this particular uh, appointment that had the obvious presence of God in their lives. It was identifiable. There was no question. They were easily identified as, as God's people and happy to be in that place. I think these people exuded the fruit of the Spirit very well. There was no question about whether there had been a change in their life. There was no question about whether they exercised the Christian graces that, that are so desirable. They had the testimony of God's work in their life. They were full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And I would say that that wisdom, um, again, uh, James talks about the wisdom that's from above. Well, where does that come from? It comes from an infilling of the Holy Spirit. You can't have the wisdom that's from above if you're not filled with the Spirit. The other thing I see here, if you drop down to... Um, well, it's, it's before the Holy, the, the, in verse 3, before it talks about being full of the Holy Ghost. It said, seven men of honest report. What does it mean to have an honest report? I believe it means that these men needed a good reputation. It means that these men should be men of good, godly, personal integrity that had an interest in continuing continuing to aspire to growth and excellence in their personal life. The next, the next chapter we're going to turn to in 1 Timothy, it talks about a good report of those that are without. So honest report, good report, um, same connotation, a good reputation. People that are known for being upstanding in their, in their dealings, in their relationships, etc., now let's turn to 1 Timothy 3 for the duration of this um, 
of this topic here this morning. A very, again, a very familiar chapter. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read this verbatim, but we're going to um, we're going to just look through this and um, and uh, speak to these different. I really believe that what chapter 3 here is in First Timothy is basically a description of what an honest report is. What, what does it mean to have an honest report? And, and again, um, can I just say it one more time? As I read through this, this, this certainly should be something that describes us, all of us, very closely. We, we, just because these things are, are, um, Listed, singled out here as, as characteristics of, uh, of leaders does not leave the rest of us off the hook at all. Basically, I think the reason Paul, um, perhaps singled these out is because, you know, in, in every, in every congregation, in every brotherhood, there are people that are in various stages of growth and, and, uh, and maybe even Maybe even uh, there's some that are maybe in stages of backsliding. Perhaps that's possible. And I think it was Paul's, he was interested that Timothy, as he selected leaders to serve in the church, however they all did that back in those days, that they were selecting from a group of people that that were especially... um, What's the word I'm looking for? I, I, I'm not coming up with a good word, but that these characteristics were not wanting, okay, um, in any way. So I kind of grouped these uh, these different things together. The first set of uh, of characteristics that I think kind of fit together in a group comes from uh, verse two and verse eleven, uh, and again. I should just explain here, the beginning part of chapter 3 talks about qualifications for the office of a bishop, and then the latter, starting in about verse 8, it says, likewise must the deacons, all right? But if you if you notice that word likewise, I really believe that it's tying the, the, the things that he just said, it's like, don't forget that, but we're going to go on and we're going to add a few things here. So actually, the, the deacons require more qualification, right? It almost feels that way, that uh, there's, there's a few more things we're going to add on here for the, for the deacon. It almost feels like he's saying. But anyway, so, so I'm using the entire chapter as, as somewhat as my template. So in, in verse 2, he talks about being blameless and of good behavior. And then in verse 11, he talks about being faithful in all things. Now, there again, it says in verse 11, it, it, this is their wives. But again, we're, we're, we're mature enough to know that it's not saying that the deacon doesn't have to be, but just his wife here, right? So we, we got that. It's, it's just, uh, these, these things are all kind of a package. If you return to Titus 2.7, it talks about being a pattern of good works. So, so as I... As I read through this, blameless, good behavior, faithful in all things, a pattern of good works, that does not mean that this man has never made a mistake or he never will make a mistake, all right? That's not what it means. But he he is a man that his life is not in question about his desire for integrity. And I'll tell you what I mean when I'm, when I'm, what I believe a blameless and a man of good behavior is. I'm sure this has happened to you already, and it certainly happened to me more than once, that I will randomly meet someone somewhere, just a random person. And through a conversation, I will find out that they happen to know Richard or Warren or Alan or whoever it may be. And they'll say, and I'll say, oh yeah, I, I go to church with that person. And they'll say, Boy, you know, they don't know me, but they know him, right? And they'll say, wow, that, that, that man's a solid person. He, he's just a good man. You know, I, I really enjoy doing business with him, or I really enjoy this or that about that person. What that tells me is that that brother in my church is leaving a good testimony. He's a pattern of good works. He, he is faithful. He's of good behavior. He's blameless. All right? He is leaving a good testimony. 
I really believe that is that is what this means. Going on, uh, speaking about this a little bit, I mentioned how that it does not mean that this person does not has never made any mistakes or never will make any mistakes. But when he does make a mistake, he is interested in making his wrongs right and owning the responsibility that he owns in any given situation. You know, it is a real temptation for any of us, and I would say especially a leader, to feel that if we make any concession of or any own anything of a misstep or a mistake or a uh, yeah, yeah, something like that, if we say yes, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. It, it, it was a mistake. It was. It was. It shouldn't have been that way. That somehow that you are relinquishing some sort of integrity, folks. That's that's not it. That is integrity. That's what integrity is. Is to say, you know what? Maybe I don't even see it quite like you do, but you have a point, and I am willing to consider that point. That's integrity. When I can. When I can own. Um, a misstep that I've made. Even if it only appears to others as a misstep, and I'm still perhaps convinced it wasn't. If I can say, you know what? You have a point because obviously you have seen something that I have not, and I will consider that. Let's go on to the next set that I see. In verse 8, we have here on the, on the, on the uh, deacon verse, it says the deacon must be grave. In verse 2, we have the words vigilant and sober. Grave, vigilant, and sober. I believe this means that this person understands that life and life's choices are not a joke. They're not made willy-nilly. The only place, folks, that life is a dream is when you're singing the song, Row Your Boat. That's it. Otherwise, life is not a dream. It is not a joke. I believe the work of any leader in any organization, and we're talking about the leader of a church here, must be approached with some seriousness for the responsibility that it brings and the seriousness for the consequences of the decisions that that leader makes. I believe a leader can ill afford to have a flippant and careless attitude toward life or his responsibilities. Now, that does not mean that this person does not have a sense of humor. It does not mean that he does not enjoy the lighter side of life. But I do believe that he's not known as a jokester, okay? I just don't think that that is becoming to these qualifying words of grave and sober and vigilant. Any leader, we're speaking of deacons here this morning, but any leader I do believe, and we could even broaden this out, has to possess some sense of discernment and critical analysis. And now I'm not using critical in a bad way. I'm using critical in a good way here, all right? He should be able, he should be a person that can honestly look into the past. He can assess the present. And he has an ability to reasonably look into the future and project what's coming based on godly observation and the wisdom that is from above. And that is how he makes his decisions. He's discerning. He's vigilant. I'm interested in First Peter. Peter has some things. In First Peter 5, he's talking about the, the he, there he calls leaders shepherds. But in that particular passage, in verse 8 of First Peter 5, he says, Be sober. Be vigilant. Now, he's addressing leaders here. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And here's how we're supposed to resist him. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Titus 2 has something very similar to say. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. All right, so that has appeared to everyone. And now what does the grace of God teach us? It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. And if you look up that word soberly, it means with a sound mind. He should live with a sound mind. In other words, sober, grave, vigilant, sound mind. These words all go together. Righteously and godly. And he's supposed to do that all the time in this present world. 
And then it says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar. That word peculiar, I was interested to note, simply means this, beyond usual. All right? Being beyond usual. A people that are beyond usual, zealous of good works. A good leader wants to see the people that he works with beyond usual. Any company wants that. They want to aspire, they want to inspire their people, their employees, to be something beyond usual. I mean, they, they need a, they, they want to have an edge in the competition. And I believe it should be the desire of a, of a church leader to see the flock, to see his fellow brothers and sisters as beyond usual attaining higher ground. I'm very interested also when I read the um, read through the book of Chronicles, there's a verse there that talks about the children of Issachar. All right? And you know what I'm going to say there. It says about the children of Issachar that they had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And I have often pondered that verse and say, what did the children of Issachar possess that the rest of them didn't? That they knew what Israel should do but nobody else seemed to know. What did they have? They obviously were discerning people. I think they were sober, vigilant, and grave people. In Stephen's account, the, the first deacon that we have um, any extensive record on, it says that his opponents were not able to resist his wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And if you would read through that chapter 7, the very next chapter after... Um, Stephen was uh, chosen. What did he give? He gave a long history lesson. And he didn't have any history books either. Right off the top of his head, a, a, a lesson for those people that were, that were against him. And what got to their ears and they ran on him and they stoned him because they could not stand to listen to him anymore. But they also could not resist his wisdom. Let's go on to the next one. Verse 8, it says, not double-tongued. What does it mean to be double-tongued? As I understand a double-tongued person, it is a person that is willing to spin his stories to the liking of the audience at any given moment. So one day he's with one audience and he knows what they want to hear, so he'll say that. The next day he's with another person and he knows what he just said yesterday would not be to the liking of that person, so he tells quite another story. He's an unpredictable person, and that makes him untrustworthy. He does not stick to his stories. They change from day to day and from time to time. I would just again say the first deacon we have record of, Stephen, was not double-tongued. And the fact that he was not double-tongued cost the man his life. The man was consistent to a fault. One day, the disciples of Jesus... um, Jesus had some fairly strong words for the Pharisees. And the disciples cornered him and said, don't you know you just offended those people? Don't you know you just offended them? Well, Jesus knew that. Ellis said in his devotional that Jesus was a very loving person, and he was. I totally agree with that. But his love for people did not keep him from saying what people needed to hear. It just didn't. And he occasionally offended people because of it. And I want to just say that in our humanity, unfortunately, sometimes in our attempt not to be double-tongued, we may offend people and, and it may, and we may have to own some of that because we didn't say it quite right. We said it kind of in a way that was taken wrong and we, and we were offensive. So I want to just say this thing must be tempered with patience and, uh, and so on, but We have to be speaking a straight story. We have to be a predictable person. Verse 8 also talks about a person that is not given to wine or filthy lucre. This talks of a man that controls his appetites. He's a temperate person. You know, there's something strangely becoming about a person that can live in temperance. This is not, I will say, an attribute that is generally found in a leader. Not generally. And I'm talking in a broad, worldly sense. 
Anytime anybody aspires and climbs up that ladder, so to speak, and they become leaders, and again, the way leaders are chosen and the way it's different than what we do here in the church, but temperance does not go along with that. The more, the higher you get in the echelons, the more money you make, the more chefs you have, the fancier your car, etc. I think you know what I'm saying. It is completely the opposite in the Church of Jesus Christ. A leader does not deserve anything any more than anybody else. All right, he is a servant, and he does not he he is not known as an intemperate person. I would say that it's especially of interest that a deacon is a temperate person. For after all, he is the money man of the church, right? Uh, that's 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 the way it works. He's the person that is responsible to collect and allocate money in a timely and appropriate way. And I think it is appropriate to say that Brother Warren has done an outstanding job at doing just that these last 40 years. I read an example in my study of a, of a deacon that was on his way from his home to the bank to deposit the offering from the day before. He stopped in at an auction. And there was an item there that he wanted, and it was kind of a quick snap decision to buy it, and he paid for it with the funds that were supposed to go into the bank, all right, in a few minutes. Well, even though he made that right, it was still inappropriate, all right? That's just not the way it should happen. Let's move on. Verse 9, what does it mean to hold the mystery of the gospel in a pure conscience? Well, if you go down to the uh, to verse 16, it talks about the mystery of godliness in chapter 3. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, priest unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. What does it mean to hold that mystery in a pure conscience? I believe that a deacon, any leader, all of us really, needs to deeply believe in the power of the gospel because he has experienced it himself. God forbid that we would ordain somebody that is not a Christian, all right? Does not, has not experienced this. Uh, does not value the blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and what it means to mean a mean, live a meaningful Christian life. Does not know the assurance of a conscience that's at peace. We must have men of integrity that hold the mystery of the gospel in a pure conscience. Verse 11 also talks about slanderers. Again, in the context of the deacon's wife, but again, we think this applies to the deacon and everyone else, I believe. I think this is extremely important. To slander means to make a false or damaging statement about someone with the intent of damaging that person's reputation. And folks, that should not be a part of anybody in leadership. It absolutely cannot be. It really, well, it shouldn't be a part of any of our of our experiences, really, when it comes down to it. But I think it's especially important as a uh, as a leader in the church that that does not happen. And and in leadership, it is especially especially easy for that to happen. Because the, the very calling um, lends itself to understanding problems and issues in people's lives and things that could be used to undermine another person's reputation inordinately. Verse 12 then. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. If you go up to verse 4. One that ruleth his own house, having his children in subjection, with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? This person needs the testimony of fidelity in marriage and a testimony of faithfulness in his children. And I will say this is the point that I speak with the most... Trepidation, I guess we'll use that word. And, and here's why. Every person needs to make his own choices. Each one of my children have to make their choice to follow God. 
They have to. That's their own choice. And every child of ours is, is very, um, it's very possible that they could disappoint us in some time in life and choose a path that we do not approve of. That is very possible. And that has happened to some of us in this room. I, I totally understand that. And so I, 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 I speak to this point knowing all those details. Also knowing that God forbid, but I suppose it would be very possible for one of my children to disappoint me as well. I know that's, that's totally possible. However, the Bible says more than once that this is something that should be considered. So from that, from that vantage point, we'd like to consider this. Why is this such an important thing? Well, I think for one thing, there's a type here. We have a type, the type of, marriage is a type of Christ and the church. And if a, if a man and his wife are not exuding that type, not experiencing that, are not in a good marriage, how in the world will he understand the, 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 uh, the relationship of Christ and the church? It, it, there, there's just that foundational point itself. But on the other hand, when a marriage is functioning well, and mom and dad are, are, love each other. They're concerned about the spiritual path of their children, etc. I think there is a recipe that is well laid for success in their home. And I think, um, there's a lot of similarities, uh, of a leader to those in a good functioning, um, home. Um, we have fidelity in a marriage. Uh, Fidelity to the brothers comes to mind to me. We have a commitment to Christ. Commitment to the body comes to mind. Commitment to the church or to the ministry that the brother is serving with. You know, in a home, bringing up children takes a very serious mix of love, example, understanding, a willingness to listen coupled with a willingness to lead. It requires a vision. It requires administering discipline as needed. That's that's what a good home is. And I'm sure I haven't exhausted the list, but kind of in a nutshell, that's what it is. And a lot of those things will carry right over into the church. And, and, and I'd like to make a point that I'm so afraid I'll be misunderstood on, but I hope you won't. And if you do misunderstand me, uh, please don't slander me if you would. Come just discuss this with me. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna delve out into waters here that I know I could be misunderstood. One of the, one of the biggest, or at least I find, one of the biggest challenges to me as a father in, in raising my family, and, and my children can testify to this, is how to say no when no needs to be said, and yet they still know that you love them and you care for them and you want the best for them, but the thing or issue or whatever that's at hand, you feel very uneasy about and to the point that you are willing to say no. All right. We have an example of that in the Bible where it says that David never told his son Adonijah no. In, in, in 2 Corinthians 2, that's, it's, it's right there. Go read it. Now, this is where I, I don't know how this all fits in a church. Because, number one, I don't believe that a leader or a leadership can necessarily unilaterally just dictate things, alright? That's not healthy, it doesn't work. In many ways we are equals, okay? In many ways we are. And yet, as I read the scripture and give an honest assessment to what it says, there is some degree of onus put upon the leadership to steer a body in a good direction. And here's where, if a leader cannot be, cannot bring himself to displease a person or persons, by a decision that is made, probably won't make a very good leader. Occasionally, there are things that come up 
that the decision displeases some people. And the leader or leaders in this situation have to bear the brunt of that displeasure. Okay? Not fun. Not a place that any, anybody desires to be, and yet it needs to take place. And let me just say this. There's a large, there's a large part of this that goes right back to the, right back to the unordained in the, in the congregation too. Are we spiritually mature enough to eat strong meat? And I think it's strong meat. When a brotherhood decision goes in a way that we would much not prefer, and yet we're willing to say, I can submit to that. I will go with that for the peace of the church and for the testimony of my conscience. I'll do do that. I truly believe that when a leader caves in constantly, predictably, to popular opinion, when he knows the choices that are being made are spiritually dangerous, he is not a strong person. Two more examples. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy to study or take heed to show himself approved unto God. Now just think about that for a second. And I'm going to uh, refer you to the um, to Revelations 2 and 3, and that might be also something you can add to your afternoon reading along with Ellis's thoughts. Read Revelation 2 and 3. In there, it starts, every letter starts out with, to the angel at the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church at Sardis, to the angel of the church here and there. Who are those angels? To my understanding, the angels were the lead elders of the congregation. I'm not quite sure why our translations translate that angels, but my understanding is that would be how we should interpret it. To the leaders at the church of Sardis, etc., Why were these churches, some of these churches were allowing things like the Nicolaitans and that wicked woman Jezebel in their midst? And Christ had strong words for those people, very strong words. And he lays the, it feels like he is laying the responsibility directly on this angel of those churches. Folks, I guess, let's bring this all together. Somewhere along the way, the, the leaders of a church are responsible for where this, thing has, where this thing ends up. And these leaders are responsible for allowing Jezebel and the Manichaeans in their midst. All right? And you know why I think they, they were doing that? They were doing that because the hard work was way too hard, and they did not want to get messed up in it. It was just too difficult. And so they were quite willing to allow Jezebel to stay there. And Jesus comes and says, you need to get rid of that person. And I have a feeling they just don't want to do the job. Much like us, when we know that child needs help and we're unwilling to render it, and like David, we never say no. Folks, I say that, take it at face value. Consider the words of the Bible. I'm not saying that this morning because of who I am. I'm saying that because that's what the Word of God says. And we need to take that seriously. So let's summarize this up. Paul is calling his audience here, I believe, to take a broad look at the state of the family of the potential leader and make an, make an analysis of what is, what is seen, what is observed. Is the person's house in order? Does he love his wife and his children? Are his children obedient, respectful, and respectable? Are they walking the ways of God as much as can be observed? Observed. Are the, do the children respect their father? Does he have a decent relationship with them? These things all play into this because much the way he relates to his family will be the way he relates as a, as a leader in other, in other areas. Jesus asked the, or made this statement in Luke 7.35. He said, wisdom is justified of her children. One other thing I'll just make mention to, leaving that, um, leaving that issue aside. And again, I want to say, I- I'm so afraid I'm going to be misunderstood here. Folks, I know there are leaders that are heavy-hearted. 
for where their children have turned out. Very heavy-hearted. And I also firmly believe that it is a big score for Satan when he can get a leader's family uh, to follow him. I just really believe that. And so I am not insinuating that there's something necessarily wrong with a person whose children have taken a path that is undesirable. However, it could mean that. It could. And that's what we need to, that's what we need to be wise enough to distinguish. Is there any issues here that might have lent itself to that problem? That's what we need to, need to consider. Okay, let's leave that. I want to, I want to do, go one more place yet. And that is, it talks about in verse six, a leader should not be a novice. A novice. A person that does not have an adequate track record in the brotherhood to understand how he lives life, how he deals with problems, how he anticipates things, etc. Backing up, does this mean that a person has to be a member of the congregation for X amount of years for this to be known? Does this mean a man needs to have a family that's mature so that you know things can be observed? Not necessarily, I wouldn't say, but take very seriously what it means to be a novice. And I would also say it works the other way. Here in a few weeks, we will be nominating people. And if a person hasn't been in the congregation, but for a mere year or so, and he honestly feels that he does not know the brotherhood well enough to give an honest nomination, that is completely okay for that reason. Now, if the reason is that you just don't want to own any responsibility about who gets ordained, that's not a good reason. But if the reason is that I honestly do not feel like I know the, the, the place well enough to, to make an honest nomination, that's a good reason. That's being honest about being a novice. All right, I need to wrap this up, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Folks, we're going to stop here. I think I've covered all I need to cover this morning. Sorry to bring it to such an abrupt end, but the clock got away from me. Um, you know, more than anything, um, pray. Pray and seek God's face. Um, I truly believe that, that we can have a good experience here in a few weeks, but we're not going to have that good experience if, if, if Christ is not the center of it. 